At Emory University's Guizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. And in an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark. To achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Guizueta Effect. Hi, I'm Melanie Buckmaster, Director of Communications for Emory University's Guizueta Business School, and your host. Today I'll be joined by Ryan Hamilton. We'll take a look into the science of decision-making. It's estimated that the average adult makes more than 35,000 decisions each day. They can be small, like where to grab your next cup of coffee, or big, like who to pick for president. As individuals, how can we make better decisions for ourselves, families, and communities? As business leaders and managers, how can our understanding of the human mind help us position our products, services, and teams for growth? Ryan is an associate professor of marketing at Guizueta Business School. His work centers on consumer psychology, pricing, branding, and effectively managing customer experiences. He has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and CNN Headline News. He also co-hosts the podcast, The Intuitive Customer. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Let's start with the basics. You, along with numerous researchers, have dedicated countless hours of study exploring the human mind and how and why decisions are made. Why is decision-making an important area of study, and how do businesses stand to gain from a better understanding of how choices are made? Well, as to why decision-making is important, I think we could boil all human behavior down to decision-making. So I guess I would ask, what else is there to study if not human decision-making? Because that's all of it. So how customers choose things, how employees decide where to work and how hard to work, you know, how we engage with our families and our loved ones. All of these are just a whole series of decisions. As far as what businesses can get out of it and learning and understanding it better, you can't get away from a theory of decision making. Uh, anytime you're trying to anticipate what somebody else will do, whether it's a customer or an employee, coworker, child, you are modeling how you think they're going to make their decision. And that model that you've created is either informed by the science of decision-making or it's not. Well, each year there are hundreds of studies and findings that dig into decision-making. These are valuable insights, but you've found they can also represent shiny objects that obscure some of the more time and research-tested foundations. You've coined the four R's of decision-making that stand out as grounding tenants in the field. Can you explain what these are and why they are important? Sure. So the, the four R's is a framework that I developed several years ago after teaching um, decision-making to students and then also to, to people in, in businesses, to executives. And the problem with research in psychology and, and decision-making research is a kind of a subfield within that is it's just so complex. There's just so much of it out there and there's always more stuff. Every month there's more of these journal articles being published and it just it piles up and it piles up and, and we can feel totally lost. Um, and so the, the alternative that we 
approach that we take for, for those of us who are interested in this is this kind of shiny object approach. So we read about some new study that was you know highlighted in, in The Economist or The New York Times, or we pick up some popular press book on decision-making. Um, and those tend to be good, but they're very focused, right? They're talking about some new development. Um, and, and that tends to hyper-focus us on something new and exciting as opposed to the basics. So the, the four R's, I, I tried to give people a place to start. So we've got all of this great research out there. Like, what are what are the most basic, the most tried and true things that we can like start with as uh, an approach to applying decision making in our real lives? Uh, one of them, though, is is reference points. Mm-hmm. Right? So the way that people evaluate all kinds of things is by evaluating them next to reference points. So if you want to understand how people make decisions, you need to understand what are they comparing the options to. Are they comparing your options to your competitor's options, that's that's a reasonable guess, but it's not always true. Sometimes they're comparing you to things in a completely different category. If you're selling roofing supplies online, there's a decent chance people are comparing your web experience not to other roofing supply companies, but to Amazon. So if we want to understand anybody, that's the first question. What is the reference point that they are bringing to it? Uh, another of the R's is resources, as in cognitive resources. So what resources are people bringing to bear to this problem? Uh, a lot of times we, especially in marketing, we assume that our customers are as fully engaged as we are in this product category. And the reality is your customers almost never care as much as you do about what it is that you're selling. So can we anticipate what people will be doing if they're in this low resource environment where they're distracted or they just don't care or they've got a lot going on? Um, that will affect how we make decisions. Uh, so let's see, reference points, resources, Reasons. Reasons. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so uh, choice justification is another kind of huge area of research. It turns out that when you are trying to justify your decisions, either to yourself or to other people, and generating reasons to do that, that changes what we choose and how we evaluate. So there are certain things that are very easy to articulate, right? I like this because it has a bigger monitor, as opposed to I like this because the brand just gives me a greater sense of confidence. Like one of those is easier to articulate and and easier to justify than the other. Mm -hmm. And so if we're in this mode where we're trying to justify our choices, that would be another big one for us. Um, So do you know the reasons why people are are choosing? Are you accidentally giving people a reason not to choose you? Right, that also sometimes happens. And the fourth, fourth one is replacements. So the idea here is that a lot of times people face evaluations that are too difficult for them to make. And so instead of just giving up, a lot of times what we do is we replace that evaluation or that decision with an easier one. So in your intro, you brought up the fact that that some of our decisions are very important, like who to choose for president. That's a really difficult evaluation to make. These are people that we've never met, that we only kind of know some version of them, that they're, and and we're asking to to anticipate how they're going to confront a bunch of you know, really complicated issues that we don't even know about. Disturbingly, it turns out that a, a lot of our presidential election decision making is based around likability. So instead of trying to do this really complex process of figuring out how are they going to handle an, an international disaster in two years if it comes about, we instead substitute in an easier question, which is probably something like, who would I rather have a beer with? 
And so we do that all the time when we're when we're making our decisions and our evaluations. We'll, we'll replace a difficult evaluation or question with an easy one, and that guides our choices. So that's not the universe of decision making, but it's it's four easy places to start if you want to make better decisions going forward. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about one of the insights you identified, and that was cognitive resources. Um, can you speak to how cognitive resources impact the decision-making process? Sure. Um, so our minds consume fuel, and the fuel is attention and, and cognitive energy. And when we have a lot of that fuel at hand and, and we apply that to the decision, we make different decisions than we do when we're, we're starved of those resources. Um, and another thing to to think about when we're, we're talking about cognitive resources, there, there are some psychologists who coined this term cognitive misers. Um, we're all cognitive misers. Uh, when it comes to exerting mental effort, we're all Scrooge McDuck. We just, we don't want to spend it. We don't want to think about it if we don't have to. So it's important to understand how people approach decision-making, not just when they're fully engaged and really motivated and really want to make the best decision, but also when they're tired and you know distracted and looking for an easy way out. So we've developed as human beings a number of ways to conserve cognitive resources. Um, habits is just one of them, right? So when you've got a, a habitual purchase that you make, you always buy the same brand, or when you've got a habit that you fall into in your life, you don't need to think about it. That, that doesn't require any cognitive resources for you to fall into that path, and so that's part of why we form habits and part of why we stick with them is because it's it's easier. It saves us what we do. So, yeah, understanding cognitive resources and how they play out in decision making is, is really important. It has affected a lot of research. Do you feel the mental load of the pandemic has collectively impacted how we make decisions? And can you give a few examples of how that played out? Sure. So uh, there's no question that for many people, the pandemic has been cognitively exhausting. Um, uh, it's it you know stress and dealing with stress is cognitively depleting. Um, uh, changes in routine can be depleting. Um, the, especially the early days of the pandemic required a lot more multitasking of people and a lot of switching between roles. Um, I actually published a paper uh, several years ago showing that that specifically is cognitively depleting. So if we're um, you know, having to play a role as a parent, helping with with homework, and then switch over to to think about our job and do some work emails, and then switch back over to being a parent, and then back over to work. That that mental shifting of gears is cognitively exhausting. It, it really wears us down. Um, so yeah, th- there's no question that that a lot of the changes having to do with the pandemic were almost certainly cognitively depleting for a lot of us. Uh, in terms of where that that leads us, you know, we should expect to see. Um, a lot more of what are called uh, self-regulatory failures when we have fewer resources. So this is, you know, less self-control. Um, I'm happy to announce to your podcast audience that I recently started going back to the gym again. Um, I could have exercised during COVID, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> but that, that was a massive year-long self-regulatory failure, in part because I just didn't feel like I had the cognitive resources to do it, and my, my habits were interrupted. And so, you know, as I'm kind of getting back into life and, and returning to habits or forming new ones, um, you know, that's been one area that I've, but I'm not alone. I know all you bread eaters out there during <laughs> during COVID were in a similar boat. Um, so yeah, I, I think that we had a lot of kind of, you know, cheating on diets, less exercising, buying kind of 
um, things that we didn't need. These are all self-regulatory failures. You know, also in that boat would be, um, you know, emotional regulation failures. So if we find ourselves snapping at other people and, um, you know, those are also signs of, of resource depletion. Um, so hopefully as we come out of this and start to have kind of more normalcy, we'll, we'll start to see improvements around that. But I, there's no question that it's been hard in many ways, and I think that's one of them. You talk a lot about reference points in your work. Can you speak to why reference points are important and how businesses can use reference points to their advantage? So there's like the, the canonical example of reference points is when you have a reference price for something that you buy frequently. So you may know exactly how much a gallon of milk should go for or a gallon of gasoline. Consumers definitely have those reference points. Uh, there are a lot of reference points, though, that are a, a lot more vague and slippery. Um, and we may have any number of reference points that we could potentially utilize in a given situation and can be nudged one way or the other. So my advice to um, marketers specifically, but to anyone in business, if you're trying to anticipate someone's decision-making, A, try to figure out what those reference points are that they're using. So are most of your customers making decisions in the same way where they're comparing you to the same set of things? Um, is it your previous experience with them? Is it that your competitor? You know, What is it that they're comparing you to? Uh, and then in those cases where it's not just completely already articulated and, and locked down, are there ways that you can influence those reference points in ways that are favorable to you? Um, you know, I, I talk about the fact that you could have exactly the same experience at a, a hotel, and if that experience was at a Four Seasons, it would be evaluated dramatically differently than if the exact same experience was at a Motel 6. Because you're bringing different reference points to that. You're expecting different things. Mm -hmm. And so what would be a failure in one case would be a, a wild success in another. Um, so can you encourage people? I mean, I, one example that I give in class sometimes is uh, when I bought my very first smartphone, uh, it was great and I loved it, but the battery was terrible. Like it, it needed to be charged very frequently. And think about the last phone that you owned before a smartphone, right? I had some kind of Nokia brick where you you'd charge it every like three weeks <laughs> and then it would just last forever. Mm -hmm. um, and then now I had an iPhone 2 or whatever it was and I had to charge it every three or four hours. And so from the perspective of cell phones, that was terrible. Like it was just this really awful experience. And at, at some point I realized that, that oh, I, was, I had the wrong reference. This isn't a phone. This is a small computer that I have in my hand. And from the perspective of how often I had to charge my laptop, the iPhone was actually doing very well. So the same performance can be seen in a positive or negative light, depending on the reference point. And and marketers and, and people in business actually have some power to influence those. And so you can you can change a failure into a victory sometimes by doing nothing more than changing customers' expectations around it, uh, changing what they should be comparing you to instead of what they should not be comparing you to. Well, piggybacking on reference points, you've done a lot of research around halo effects. Can you explain what halo effects are? And can you also discuss your research in this area related to retailers and how the halo effect impacts perceived prices? So halo effect is an old idea in psychology. It goes back many decades. Uh, and the basic idea is that sometimes we form an, an overall impression of someone or something and then we use that overall impression to kind of fill in the gaps or help us uh, evaluate more specific things. So, for example, if 
Um, if, if I think that you're just a really nice person, then I can make all kinds of other judgments about you. And oftentimes, like, judgments even well outside of that domain, right? So, oh, she's probably likely to lend me money. We can talk about that after we're done here. Um, <laughs> you know, she, she also probably did really well in school because nice people do well in school. Right? We're now drawing all kinds of additional judgments about you based on this one overarching evaluation. Um, so people do that in business context too, So, and specifically in marketing. So part of what a, a brand does is create a halo so that we can make a whole bunch of other more specific inferences about that offering based on that halo. So the, the specific type of halo effect that I study um, is called retailer price image. And the idea is that in addition to evaluating all the individual prices that we see, we also tend to form these halo evaluations of retailers. So. Um, you know, I might think the prices at Walmart are low. I might think the prices at Neiman Marcus are high. Um, and then when we have that halo judgment, uh, that then influences us in all kinds of other ways. So I might not even be willing to walk into a store that I think has high prices to find out that I'm wrong about that because I already have that halo. And so that influences then my willingness to, to even research further. Um, I've got some studies where we find that if we give people kind of a neutral price, a lot of times they will evaluate it as being in line with the price image. So if I show you a price and I tell you, oh, this price is the price at, at Whole Foods, you go, oh, well, then that must be a high price, right? Even if it's objectively not. So um, that's the halo effect is applied to retailer pricing. Well, when thinking about halo effects, it's not just perceived preference. There's evidence that our minds actually experience a higher level of satisfaction when the halo effect comes into play. Can you talk about how this is measured and why it's important? You can measure that in any number of different ways. Um, as simple as just kind of asking people to rate it on a scale. Uh, the most interesting way that it's been measured that I'm aware of um, is when they they take people and put them in a, a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine. Um, so this is a giant spinning magnet that measures changes in blood flow in the brain. Um, and from that, they can tell kind of what areas of the brain are activated um, at various points. And so in one of these studies that I'm aware of, they um, they had people taste test wine and told them that it was either, you know, cheap wine or expensive wine. It was a $10 bottle of wine or $90 bottle of wine. Um, and they could see, now they could have just asked them, how, how good is this taste? Um, and that would have been fine. Instead, they spent tens of thousands of dollars to measure blood flow and found that the reward centers of the brain lit up more when it was the $90 bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, what of course made this interesting and newsworthy is that it was the same wine throughout. So exactly the same wine um, lit up different areas of the brain and, and it especially made rewards more activated. So people actually physically experienced a, a the wine as being better when they were told that it was more expensive. So when it had this halo of being kind of a fancier wine, then your brain was fooled into experiencing that in a different way. So yeah, it's, it, these halo effects can influence all kinds of, of things. Yeah, I've had that happen. Um, I'm very into stories. So if there's ever story around a product, a Absolutely. backstory, yeah. um, I get, I, I, I find I do enjoy it more. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it kind of, pulls you in more and you get more involved in it and more engaged in it. And in some sense, when there's a story, it creates kind of an ancillary source of benefit. So like this, in addition to how the wine tastes, now that you also have this kind of personal connection to it. 
all of that goes into contributing to an overall halo around the wine. And um, you may then therefore consider it to be more sustainable than it actually is because you like sustainability and you like this wine. And so therefore it must be. Um, so yeah, we make all of these additional judgments based on these halos. Well, halo effects obviously impact products and services. And as you mentioned earlier, they represent a major justification for branding. But they can influence other important decisions as well, such as how we perceive people. Can you talk through how attractiveness creates a halo effect for individuals and how this impacts the way people perceive them? So the halo effect stuff was initially identified with people. So in marketing, a lot of times we will take psychology theories that have been applied to people and then see if they apply to brands also, and a lot of them do. Uh, and halo effect is one of those. So uh, the earliest research in uh, on the halo effect was in fact around person perception. And this goes back to like the 1940s. It's very old stuff. Um, and, and yes, it, the way we evaluate a lot of people, I mean, stereotypes, positive and negative, are a type of halo, right? We form this overall evaluation of a person based in part on kind of the, the class or group that they belong to. And then we make a bunch of assessments about them that are influenced by that. Um, when these are negative stereotypes, that's obviously a huge problem um, that we need to overcome. Uh, attractiveness is one of these that's been very well studied in psychology. Um, the, the attractiveness of a person can be assessed almost instantaneously, and then once it is, it it influences almost all other judgments that we make about a person. It's uh, it's comic or tragic, depending on how you look at it. But attractive people are assumed to be smarter and nicer and more successful and more happy. And um, all of that is is halo effect. So yeah, if if we are engaging with people and want to be more fair uh, in our interactions with them, that's something we need to take into account and realize that this is a very hardwired effect and we should, you know, try to take steps to accommodate that uh, and kind of work around it uh, because it is it is just an automatic thing that tends to happen to us. Yeah, and I think being conscious of it will help, but also um, in the instances where it makes sense, Yeah, um, working to gather more information. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in general, halo effects are more pronounced when we don't have any other information to work off of. So when we have more and better information, we don't need to rely on, on a halo. I mean, that's true in business too. If you have good price information, you don't need to rely on the price image of the retailer to do that. So uh, halo effects are, are kind of a shortcut that we use. Um, so yeah, that one solution is not very efficient, but one solution is to get to know people better before we make evaluations around them. We've talked a lot about your research, but let's get more personal. How has your research impacted how you behave? And do you make decisions differently now that you know so much about this field? It's an interesting question. Um, I mean, so I do most of the grocery shopping for my family, in part because my wife hates it, um, and in part because I like I do occasionally have research ideas based around it and, and find interesting examples for teaching. But I don't consider myself to be a super savvy shopper by any means. Um, I, I think that I'm more aware of the, the biases that influence me. I don't know that I am any less susceptible to them. There, there are certain biases that we can overcome just by, just through brute force effort. If we know about it and we decide that we, we want to do better, and then we can just do better about them. 
Uh, a lot of these biases, though, are, from an evolutionary standpoint, adaptive. They actually help us, right? The, the fact that we use halo effects uh, as, a, as a mental shortcut to make things more efficient, on average, that does us a lot of good. Now, they'll occasionally fail spectacularly, um, and they can produce a lot of negative consequences for us and for other people. But I, I'm not under any illusion that that because I know about these biases, then as I'm out shopping, I'm able to kind of muscle my way past them. Um, you know, I will occasionally catch myself. I, I guess kind of the, the bigger lesson for me personally, um, it's I'm continually amazed at just how complex our decision making is and and how we cope with all the information that we have it's just it's kind of a, a perpetual sense of of wonder for me um, i feel very lucky that i get to study this and that I, I you know continue to find it so interesting ryan hamilton is an associate professor of marketing at guisbetta business school he joined today to talk about the science of decision making and how individuals business leaders and managers can benefit by learning more about how and why decisions are made. For more information about the Guizueta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz podcast.